boy. Well, tonight we come to a very personal section of Paul's letter to these uh, folks in Corinth. He's been defending for the faith. Chapter 10, he started declaring the authentication of his apostleship. And here in chapter 11, he continues to fight. Um, let's look at verse 1. He says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed do bear with me. We're going to see this word folly, or foolish, or foolishness, throughout this chapter, because Paul didn't ordinarily talk about himself. Usually he shunned the spotlight, but here he turns the attention directly on himself, and he's forced to defend his ministry. And though this is necessary, Paul refers to it as a little folly. He's been called by the Lord to preach the gospel, to preach the message of salvation, not to spend his time defending himself or his ministry. So this is folly. This is foolishness that he has to take time away from his mission to defend himself. I like what Dr. McGee, J. Vernon McGee. Now, if you don't know J. Vernon McGee, he was pastor of the uh, open Church of the Open Door. He taught at Biola, and he was the best friend of my pastor, when I began youth ministry. And uh, he was not a very good golfer. And his bent golf clubs would prove it. But he was a great Bible teacher. So he says this, Although he would rather speak to them about Christ than to spend the time defending himself, now it was necessary to defend himself. So he says, I'm speaking foolishly. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is willing to do the foolish thing if that will open their hearts and their ears to the truth. If it's their confusion about his authority that has muddled their minds and allowed these false teachers to bring turmoil and uncertainty, or it's created an open door for spiritual lies and deceptions to be cultivated and nurtured there at that church, then he's willing to do this for their sake. But he starts by saying this in verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. You see, he's jealous for you, not jealous of you, he's telling them. Paul loves these people. He's like a spiritual father to them. And he's jealous for them. He only wants God's best for each of them. And to see these false teachers corrupting their faith, causing many of them to be unfaithful and spiritually adulterous, makes him jealous, a godly jealousy, jealous for the Lord. I like what Sandy Adams says about this. He says, what if you were the best man at your friend's wedding and you saw the bride sneak off with another man? You'd hurt for your friend. You'd feel betrayed. That's how Paul felt when a Christian was disloyal to Jesus. Verse 2, the second part. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You see, that's the sanctity of our relationship with Jesus. 
We are his bride. We're to be chaste virgins spiritually in our relationship with him. Paul does compare the local church to the bride. Remember he did in Ephesians chapter 5. And his desire was to keep the church pure and free from the false doctrine and worldly living. Verse 3. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity and purity that is in Christ. Spiritual corruption begins in the mind, in our thinking. Corruption also, most often, is a progressive process. Nobody starts out, well, hardly anybody, to be corrupt. And so Psalm 1 tells us this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in in his law he meditates day and night. You see, walking, a person might glance over and see something ungodly. Oh. But when we stand, and when we stop and stand, we've stopped to more closely examine or personally consider that path of a sinner. Hmm. Finally, progressively, sitting implies involvement and joining or uniting with the scornful. It's an acceptance, even a conformity or harmony with spiritual corruption. And just as Satan deceived Eve's mind in Genesis chapter 3, so these false teachers deceive the minds of believers and lead us or lead them away from the truth. Simplicity in verse 3 means single-hearted devotion. Satan challenged God's word, and what did he challenge? He challenged the simplicity of it. Let's read about that in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast in the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Hmm, has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you even touch it, lest you die. um, Can you see that Eve adds to the simple statement that God gave to Adam? We can't eat it. We can't even touch it. And so Satan knows he's got her. So Satan says, verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. I like again how Sandy Adams describes this conversation between Eve and the snake. He says, Satan first doubted God's word. Has God indeed said? Then he denied God's word. You will not surely die. Then he distorts God's word. You will be like God, knowing 
good and evil, but Satan painted it as a desirable state to be in. You see, it was God's Word that Satan was attacking. We have only God's Word as our sole source of objective truth. Everything else is subjective. How absolutely important it is that each of us stay true to the Word of God. Only God's Word, you see in my cartoon, tells us from which side to look at life if we want to find the truth. You see, it can't be both a six and a nine. It can only be what the author intended it to be. So, religious leaders today try to give us a different view of who Jesus is. The other side of the picture. Not the Christ that Paul preached. Or another spirit. Not the Holy Spirit of God. Or another gospel. Not the gospel of God's grace. The only defense against spiritual apostasy is faithfulness to the Word of God. Verse 4. For he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. Now today many churches talk about Jesus. But it's the biblical Jesus dressed in a new wardrobe. This Jesus of liberalism or the new age thinking never existed. If they deny the virgin birth of Jesus, they're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. If they don't believe he performed miracles, they have a different Jesus in mind. They deny that he's the one that died for the sins of the world or that he was raised bodily from the dead or that he is the God-man. And yet one of the oldest creeds declares that he is very God of very God and very man of very man. If they deny any of these claims, then a different Jesus is being presented. Going on with that verse. Or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received. You see, the spirit of this modern world, the new age thinking, is not the spirit of Jesus. It's not the spirit of the Holy Trinity. Or they present a different gospel which you have not accepted and you may well put up with it. You see, the all roads lead to heaven proclamation of the gospel. That denies the gospel of the cross. Verse 5. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. So he's saying, whoever you think the greatest apostles are, I am not at all inferior to that. Paul is claiming full apostleship and full authority which these false apostles are denying. And they're teaching that Paul is the fake. Verse 6, Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. We've been an open book, thoroughly manifested in all things. Now, Paul's early religious training under the rabbi Gamaliel, he, he may not have majored in preaching or apologetics or debate. 
It may have been a, a study verse by verse of the Old Testament knowledge. Well, communication is a tough skill to learn. And I've heard it said that the test of a preacher is that his congregation goes away saying, not what a lovely sermon, but yes, I will obey God's Spirit. The Lord could care less about sermons that sound good if they don't do any good. I'm saying that to all of us. I'm not just looking at you. I'm looking at you looking at me. Okay? All right. Paul was a simple preacher, but he was a brilliant uh, student. But he preached with simplicity. I like this. I think he put the cookies on the lower shelf in every city so that the kiddies could reach them and understand them. Simplicity was the method of Paul. Verse 7. Now this is an interesting three verses. Let's look at them. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. You think he's a little upset here? And when I was present with you and in need myself, I was a burden to no one, for what I lacked the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Well, Paul seems, I looked up three words, aggrieved, aggravated, and frustrated. Because these three verses are a little brusque and snippy, to say the least. I began wondering why Paul was willing to take funds from the churches in Macedonia and not from Corinth. So the best answer and the simplest answer that I came up with was that he took support only from those who offered it. He never asked for money for his own ministry. The churches in Macedonia were generous. The Corinthian believers... Not so much. Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. I'm not going to quit boasting about them. Why? Because I don't love you? God knows. Paul's willingness to do manual labor was not well received, even by the Corinthians who benefited from his generosity. And I start asking why. Well, one reason is perhaps the antagonists were using Paul's openness about gifts from up north by saying, well, he's just putting us down with all this babbling about them. Or maybe, and the truth is, Paul himself didn't think he should draw a salary because he didn't deserve one. Well, I like the message, and it makes this more clear. Paul was trying to be, was, wasn't trying to be political correct, politically correct with these people. He wasn't trying to tell them what they wanted to hear. Here's what the message says. With Christ as my witness, it's a point of honor with me, and I'm not going to keep it quiet just to protect you from what the neighbors will think. It's not that I don't love you. God knows I do. I'm just trying to keep things open and honest between us. Verse 12. 
But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those, those false teachers, who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we true apostles are in the things which they boast. Well, Paul, in verse 5, boasts of his calling from God. Verses 7 and 9, he boasts of his love for them. These false teachers boasted in their superior knowledge and self-righteousness. Paul says in verse 12 that he wants to cut off even their opportunity to boast, their opportunity to be regarded as true apostles. Verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Now, who were these false apostles? Well, there's one place that we can get a clue as to where they're from. We know from Acts 15, verse 24, that there were self-appointed delegations who went out from Jerusalem to enforce legal mosaic, mosaic ordinances. And it's possible that these false apostles in Corinth were mavericks of this sort. The godly leadership of the mother church, I call it, in Jerusalem, said in, in Acts 15, they said this, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. You see, these were false apostles claiming, false commands to give out. Verse 14. And no wonder, Paul says, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan is a master of disguise. He's a master of manipulation. Well, let me take you back again to Genesis, to the scene in the garden. Satan, the false angel of light, he claims light in the form of enlightenment. Let me enlighten you, Eve, and even you, Adam. Genesis 3, verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Let me enlighten you. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the serpent first claimed to know the truth, the true truth not the fake news, saying the truth of the matter is, Eve, you will not surely die. Satan was claiming that God was holding truth from them. Here, let me shed some light on what this tree thing is really about. Let's open those naive, innocent eyes of yours and show you what God doesn't want you to know. Well, verse 15. Therefore, because of that, Paul says, it is no great thing if his ministers, these false apostles, also transform themselves into the ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. You see my Chevy Camaro up there? This is a great example of this idea that Paul is talking about, that the ministers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. You see, they called themselves transformers. 
Now, most young people, perhaps your kids or grandkids, they can relate to this. It's the latest thing in entertainment, the, the Marvel movies. They call themselves Transformers. So this Camaro turns into this, this normal Chevy Camaro, turns into this superhuman cyber machine. These false teachers in Corinth transform themselves into super apostles. They were what I call not-so-nice false teachers parading around claiming superior authority, greater righteousness, a more honorable reputation and lifestyle. They were the model to follow and emulate. Perhaps these bogus believers pointed to their worldly success or their stature in the community as proof of God's approval. You see, Paul was forced to admit, in verse 9, remember, that he is in need, depending on the kids from the north, the Macedonian churches. He's even compelled to work for wages by day and only be able to preach or teach at night. Well, they're saying he's just a common man doing common labor. Well, Paul tells us the end of these liars and counterfeits. Their ends will be according to their works. And God will judge all unbelievers as well as these false apostles by their works. Revelation 20:12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were open, and another book was open. Oh, aren't you glad? You see, another book was open, the book of life. And if your name is written in the book of life, you're dismissed at this point. You guys can get up and leave. We have further business for the rest. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Have you ever tried to picture what this might be like? Like the lake of fire? Now, in Almanor, everybody wants to be close to the lake. I think Satan will be close to the lake. His neighborhood will be close to the lake. And maybe if your works are greater, worser, you'll be in Satan's neighborhood. You'll have to put up with him as your across-the-street neighbor or over-the-fence neighbor. Well, do any of you have an over-the-fence neighbor? Fences make good neighbors. But when Satan's on the other side, but people are judged according to their works, maybe the city spreads out from that lake further and further. But this whole city in the lake of fire is without the giver of good gifts, the absence of God himself, because they're judged according to their works. Verse 16. Can you think of anything worse to God than his children being led astray. I think that's why Paul, why Paul brings that up in this, in this um, conversation. Verse 16. I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I may boast a little. Well, Paul must be responding to the insults of these accusers. Maybe they've even labeled him a fool, a chump, 
Maybe even like a swindler where there, he's stealing value and worth in the duped lives of these citizens of Corinth. Because they're a city of sophistication and, and means and, and, and wealth. Why? They say, Paul is just a wanderer, a rover. He's just like a, a, a common gypsy with just the clothes on his back and a tale to spin about his own self-importance. Well, Paul responds to these attacks. Verse 17. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord. <laughs> I'm going to get off base as far as the Lord's concerned here because the Lord would never defend himself in the way I'm going to. But as it were, foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. I know it's foolish, but I've got to say, reluctantly, I've got to defend the gospel. Verse 18. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. Well, they think themselves wise. And that's probably the most foolish thing a person can do, is to think that how wise I am compared to everyone else. Since they've been taken in by boasting and bluster, Paul will give them a little of what they want. So read verse 20 with me with a little sarcasm in your thinking. Verse 20. For you put up with it. Well, what are they putting up with? The hassles and mandates of these false apostles. For you put up with it. If one brings you into bondage, you put up with it. If one devours you, if one takes from you, you put up with it. If one exalts himself, if one even strikes you in the face, you put up with it. These people in their immature, carnal desires to belong to something or someone of prestige and importance have subjugated themselves to these harsh, punitive deceivers. And in a sense, verse 20 is the description of a carnal ministry. It's a ministry that brings people into bondage, not liberty. It devours them selfishly. Its leaders exalt themselves, not Jesus. It smites the saints instead of helping to heal their wounds. In fact, Jeremiah talked about this in his day. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And here's what's worse. And my people love to have it so. Isn't it sad But carnal, immature people like flashy, forceful preachers? What they don't like is men who remind them to walk humbly or to serve others sacrificially. The Corinthians have been swindled and cheated out of their liberty in Christ, out of the simplicity of the gospel. They've been alienated from the meekness and gentleness of Jesus. Remember when that was mentioned in chapter 10, verse 1? Pastor Lee brought it up. In fact, he said to me at the, at the, in the office, he says, 
What's the strongest, the strongest thing of the gospel? I go, I don't know. Paul says it in verse 1. It's the gentleness and meekness of Christ. And, and um, let's read that verse. Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In fact, Jesus accused the legalistic Pharisees and scribes of the same devouring practice. Mark twelve thirty nine. Beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Well, what did Paul tell us? They'll be judged according to their works. Verse 21. And to our shame, now this is an interesting verse. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Now, I read that, and I'm not sure what weakness exactly Paul is referring to here. To our shame, I say that we were too weak to the, to the, for that. Now, it doesn't exactly say what that is. Well, one commentator said this. Notice Paul's sarcasm in this verse. His critics had accused him of being weak, and he's saying, yes, I'm glad I'm too weak to abuse people like the false apostles did. That may be exactly what Paul was getting at there. Or maybe it could be that Paul is ashamed that he was too weak or faint-hearted in the past to stand up and fight them. Perhaps he's asking, have I waited too long? Well, we don't know for sure, but if that's the case, he's not going to hold back any longer. He's jumping in with both feet. Because he says in verse 22, Well, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. It's foolish for me to say this, but I am more. In labors, more abundant. Well, these might be foolish human credentials. I think that's what Paul's getting at. Like when you value a gem on the basis of its size without looking at its quality. But have you ever had a real little kid choose between a nickel and a dime? You can, keep a, a, you can keep that dime every time because they're going to go for the biggest one. And that's what these, these Corinthian people are doing. If these endorsements indeed are important and significant to these people, Paul says, then indeed he possesses them with spades. I like how the message interprets and states these verses. Let me read that. It's up there. Since you admire the egomaniacs of the pulpit so much, remember this is your old friend the fool talking, let me try my hand at it. Do they brag of being Hebrews, Israelites, the pure race of Abraham? Well, I'm their match. Are they servants of Christ? I can go them one better. I can't believe I'm saying these things. It's crazy to talk this way, but I started and I'm going to finish. I've worked 
much harder. So without pause or even taking a breath, Paul will list his true credentials of authenticity, his true badge of courage. In verses 23 through 27, Paul discloses to us his chief credentials of apostolic ministry. And that's the wounds on his body that he received in serving Christ. Paul continues to argue that divine accreditation and authority should not be seen against the backdrop of greatness, but of human weakness. Paul notes the absurdity of these comparisons himself. But the Corinthian preoccupation with comparisons have forced him to do it. But in truth, the marks of the apostle are the marks of Christ, including weakness and suffering. Just like he said in Galatians chapter 6, From now on let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of of the Lord Jesus. Paul has reminded the church of his jealousy toward them, his generosity to them, and now he grows even bolder. He enumerates his sufferings for them. All the things that he went through to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Now before I read these verses, these marks of authenticity that Paul presents, I want you to read what J. Vernon McGee what his reaction to these verses are, is. He says, Now we come to a section where Paul describes his own life as a minister of the gospel. McGee says, I must confess that I have been in the ministry for many years, but when I read what this man Paul went through, I recognize that I've been playing at it. I have not been a real servant of Christ as this man had been. And I am a stad, nor have I. So here we go. Verse 23. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In death often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Now there's only one such beating on record, and that's in Acts 16. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now this is mentioned in Acts 14 and again in Galatians 6.17 where Paul was left for dead. He goes on, Three times I was shipwrecked. Now only one shipwreck is mentioned in the New Testament. That's Acts 27. I was shipwrecked a night and a day I have spent in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Now all of these things are the result of persecution from the enemy. But then Paul is going to show how he also suffers as an apostle, as he carries out his daily ministry. Look at verse 27. These connect to how he lives for Christ every day, sharing his, his life. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. 
All of these experiences have come to Paul as he journeyed from city to city sharing the gospel. They are the events that the Lord endured with him as he led him through them. And it does sound and feel like Paul is boasting, but Paul would never have even mentioned these trials and hardships if it wasn't for the fact that he was defending the gospel. In these verses, Paul claims that his suffering, not the praise of men, was the best proof he had for asserting his apostleship. So here's a thought. When you're selecting a spiritual leader, someone said, look for the scars. Don't look for the stars. Paul went anywhere. He endured anything that he might share the gospel with anyone. Well, let's listen to Dr. McGee again. How many of us today could say that we have been through even the smallest part of anything like that? We sit in the lap of luxury. We live in an affluent society. We know practically nothing of hardship for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, we go on. The real pain and struggle that Paul endured each day, the other things he prayed unceasingly about, the burden he carried each day from sunrise to sunset, he tells us about in the next two verses. He says this in verse 28. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, who is weak and I'm not weak, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. You see, it seems here that Paul's heaviest load was the care for the churches. Paul was deeply burdened for their spiritual welfare. Not just the church in Corinth he's writing to, but for all of the churches. These were the concerns and distresses that burdened Paul every day, that took him to his knees in prayer. Well, let me read these two verses again in the New Living Translation. I think it conveys Paul's true feelings. Verse 28, Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray, and I do not burn with anger? Then in verse 30, Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity, my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. You see, if we're, if we're asking who's looking at Paul, well, the Corinthian people are looking at these false teachers, but who's looking at Paul? God himself. And that's who we live for. That's whose purview we seek to live under. And then he says this. In Damascus, his last two verses in this chapter. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let out in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And I read and I reread those two verses trying to figure out 
why does Paul end with this little narrative? And I have to agree with another of my favorite Bible teachers, Warren Wiersbe. Here's what he says. Here's why. Why does Paul end here? Wiersbe says this. Paul chooses an especially interesting item, his escape from Damascus found in chapter 9 of Acts. How humiliating it must have been for this great rabbi to be lowered over a wall in a basket. Would the Judaizers have stooped this low? No. They would have compromised their message and walked out the city gate. These false apostles came into town carrying important letters of approval and acclaim. Paul is saying, I came with just the approval of the Lord, and one time I even had to skip out of town hiding like a baby in a basket. Well, as I close this, let me ask you a final question or two about Paul and these false apostles. What kind of leader do you want to follow? A man full of pride or a man dependent on God's grace? Would you rather follow one of these Ivy League prima donnas or follow a fellow worker missing a finger or two? Well, let's let Dr. McGee close the chapter for us. He says this, My friend, Don't brag about what you suffer for Christ. Read this chapter over again. We must all bow our heads in shame and say, Lord Jesus, help me be true to you. Help me be faithful to you. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer. We live in a country that gives us such freedoms that, Lord, we we can't imagine others in this world who are facing many of the trials that are facing death uh, from Satan and his messengers of light. And so, God, we pray for these folks. We pray for those who are seeking to live for you around this world in persecution and in danger and in peril. We pray, Lord, for your blessing and your presence in their lives. And then I pray for myself and for all of us. Lord, help us be true to you. Help us not be caught up in things and daily life but Lord, to be looking for your approval, that all that we do, we do to your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to see you tonight.